0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dean Rickles. He's professor of history and philosophy of modern physics at the University of Sydney and a director of the Sydney Centre for Time. Life doesn't last that long. The ever-present spectre of death looms large, even if you live to be 100. This can feel like a tragedy in many ways. What use are our efforts if they'll all be turned to dust eventually? The philosopher's insight is needed here to give us a fresh perspective. Expect to learn why keeping your options open is a path to an early grave, how you can remind yourself of the miracle that you're alive at all, the solution to living a listless, unintentional life, whether death is actually the only thing that gives life any meaning, the danger of being a sailor without a journey or a route, and much more. I didn't plan it to be this way, but this feels like quite an appropriate episode, I think, to go into the Christmas period with. I I do sometimes feel a bit melancholy when it's Christmas time. I think it's because I'm back home and I'm, I'm reminiscing about what's happened throughout the year and everything slows down a little bit. And I do think that considering the Shortness of life and where it is that we're going with our days is probably a a pretty nice reflection. And it is, despite the uh, morbid sounding (laughs) description, it is actually quite uplifting. Uh, So, this will be the last episode I get to speak to you about before Christmas happens. There is no episode this Saturday. I figured that I would give everyone uh, their ears a rest uh, on Christmas Eve. Um, But yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Love you all. Um, I can't wait to see what the New Year's got in store. Tons and tons of exciting things, but for now, enjoy the food, enjoy the family, be present, remember that life is incredibly short, and that this could be one of the last Christmases that you get to spend with even the annoying aunt who you can't bear to hear her burping her way through Christmas dinner, whatever it is, uh, I really hope that you find time to, uh, to reflect and enjoy it. So yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dean Rickles. Is it right to say that life is short, in your estimation?
1: It is. It is short. I think it is a little bit too short. Even even though it's necessary that it's finite, I don't think it needs to be quite this finite. Although, having said that, I mean I, that's just my selfishness, and my ego talking. What would you I optimise would like, oh,
0: for if you had the choice? Two fifty.
1: That would be that would be pretty good. But then if it was two fifty, would be sitting here saying, I don't know. I 250, wish it was seven fifty. You know, yeah. <laughs> but um but it seems to be like the way the I, I mean i make this point in the book the way the the memory system and the human mind is put together seems to be pretty much well made for about 100 maybe 120 something around that years because um one of the examples i give is this classic example from the philosophy of memory sort of back in the enlightenment period where there were these debates between John Locke and uh, Thomas Reed, a pair of philosophers, and they were talking about um, what the nature of self is and the continuation of the self. And there was a, 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 memory theory, a memory theory of the self, which is that we're just sort of this continuation of being able to remember who we were over our lifespan. And Thomas Reed pointed out, well, no, there's a, we can imagine situations where when you're Sort of in your middle age, maybe 30 years old, it's easy to remember what you were doing when you were five, maybe, or a little easier. You can remember scrumping apples when he was a kid is the example he gives. And then as he gets older, this, um, he's supposing it's an officer. He can remember being, um, when he's retired, he can remember being an officer, but he can no longer remember scrumping apples. He's lost that bit. So there's, there's sort of limits, finite limits that have been placed by biology. On what we can fit coherently in a lifespan, and what we can remember of ourselves to hold a self together.
0: Yeah, because I mean, the ship of Theseus as an example, right? That if you replace every board on this ship after a particular amount of time, is it the, still still the same ship? And the difference is that the ship has no idea that it is a ship, or that it can remember each of the floorboards being removed. I think it's every seven years pretty much every cell in your body has been recycled so that there are no cells that would have been there seven years before. So you go, okay, well, if I am a ship of Theseus in that regard, what does it mean to say that me now is the same as me seven years ago or 14 years ago or 21 years ago? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, well, this was, I mean, this memory idea is supposed to take care of that problem. So so an, an earlier theory would have been we're just what we're made of, right? You are what you're made of. Well, the ship of Theseus example you've just presented shows you, well, no, you can't be because it gets recycled all the time. So you're not what, you can't be identified with what you're made of. So there must be something else. And one of the things that you can say about the ship of Theseus and humans is, well, maybe there's at least some continuous thread through these changes. Like it doesn't make sense if you just change all of the bits of the ship of Theseus all at once because that's just obviously a new ship the whole point of that ship of theseus example is you're, you're doing it gradually plank at a time so it's not sort of too significant a change um so the memory problem was the memory id was supposed to take care of that but then it faces this, this other problem which is that there are limits to memory and what you can hold so it's probably not memory either that's that's playing this role or or it is but that you know but then it sort of shortens Necessarily shortens your life, and I make the point that there's um, there's a kind of interesting overlap here with old theories of transmigration of the souls and the idea that we have an, uh, an immortal soul that endures through these various bodies. I mean, it's hard to make make sense of that really because there's not going to be any record or remembrance of these passages, just like there isn't within a life. So. If we were immortal, if we had these extremely long lifespans, it would be just as if we were a bunch of separate people after a certain time. So it doesn't make any sense to say that we're immortal if we have something like the same memory system. And then if we change our memory systems in such a way that we can expand, then it's not clear that we're humans anymore and we're something else. And of course, this is what many people want to do, right, with this transhumanist business. They want to, you know, get around... What they consider to be these terrible limitations of being human, like mortality and these memory problems and so on.
0: It is interesting to think what is the single continuous thread. And someone might say, "Well, it's 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 my sense of I, right? It's sort of consciousness, or it's the self-referential element of me internally, my internal texture." And you go, "Well, my in the the texture of my mind is different now than it was." two or three years ago, because I'm always learning and developing things. And if my memories are in this, whatever, sort of 50-year window, where by the time that you're 50 years hence from remembering something, especially as a young child, that you basically can't, you go, okay, so as soon as you can no longer remember something, does that mean that the person who did the thing is no longer related to you? Is that a different Mm. person somehow? And... Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can completely see this. So you mentioned there about the fact that this is a, a conversation and a topic that's been discussed for a, a good while. Seneca wrote On the Shortness of Life mm. 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did he get right and what did he get wrong, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the – obviously, it's a reference to Seneca, the, the title of the book, and part of the point of the book is precisely to reassess what Seneca did in that book on the shortness of life, which is an absolutely amazing book it's shorter than my book as well what he got I think the best thing that he I disagree with him a lot in the in this book as well I think he gets a lot wrong, especially about the the role of death and the role of the shortness of life, so he's not so much concerned with sort of appreciating why it has to be short he doesn't really mention that he sort of agreed. he's more kind of um Telling people off for wasting it. So he's saying it's not that it's so it's short. It's that you're just not using it well enough. And if you used it well enough and wisely, and prudently, and almost like a, a kind of, um, economic, problem where you distribute the various bits of your life, then you'll find that it's not particularly um, particularly short. So, I, so I, I disagree with him on on that point. That you you kind of need a sh- you also need life to be short, in order for all of the various components that that are within it to make sense and to build a sort of a a good human life. But what he gets right, most right, I think, is this business of um, the the provisionality of most people's lives. So he has some fantastic quotes about how life is supposed to be a, a journey. And if you imagine somebody who sort of You know, a sailor who went out in a ship and was just sort of tossed around by the ocean and sort of then came back, although they endured and there was time lapsing and these kinds of things, well, he didn't have a journey. Whereas, you know, some sailor who's going and exploring all of these new lands, well, that's a journey and that's what you want your life to be like, right? It's not enough just to endure and just to exist. You need to be sort of choosing. And this is why I think the having death at the end of it is vital because it forces you to have to make choices. If you didn't have that sort of boundary flashing before you, you wouldn't feel like you had to make choices. You relax and you think I can do that, you know, whenever I've got plenty of time for that. So it's in, in precisely that it's precisely the limit of death that forces you to face the provisionality of life. And not living provisionally and thinking that you've got all of your options open and try and thinking it's good to keep all of your options open as if it's, you know, some sort of wise move like, you know, this old proverb, don't put all your eggs in one basket and you don't just don't settle, don't choose, don't commit to anything, don't be anything basically is the, is the ultimate, um, uh, you know, outcome of this kind of approach.
0: So one of my friends, Gwenda Bogle, taught me about deferred happiness syndrome, the common feeling that your life has not begun, that your present reality is a mere prelude to some idyllic future. This idyll mm. is a mirage that will fade as you approach, revealing that the prelude you rushed through was in fact the one to your death.
1: Yeah, that's very Seneca. That's, um, <laughs> um, it's almost identical to a quote I've got in my book where he's talking about how you're putting things off and you're saying, look, when I'm 60, I'll just get this done when I'm 50. Then when I'm 60, then I can do all of those things and enjoy life. And um, yeah, I also mention um, some of um, Carl Jung's theories because he discusses very similar um, problems. He calls it the provisional life and the problem of the provisional life, but he also calls it the problem of the poor Eternus, which is he associates this aspect of living provisionally with a psychological complex, basically. And it's associated to narcissism in in modern terminology. Um, he tried to call it the it was tried to call it be called the Bacchus concept initially. And it's the idea that you should live like you should be unlimited, right? A Puerna Aeternus character thinks they shouldn't be limited by things like Death, jobs, marriages, any kind of commitment at all, because it pins them down. And any limit is not a godlike kind of thing to have. So they want to be eternal children with no responsibility. And if you make a decision and if you act, then you're going to be held responsible for that action. And you have to be responsible for the consequences. And that's an adult thing, not a childlike thing. So they don't want that. And, I mean, it's amazing to see how many people are like this now. It is an absolute epidemic, the, this sort of provisionality and sort of enforced in the politics.
0: And- is, is that not a natural byproduct of the fact that there are so many options open to people? You can travel to more places, learn about more things. People don't even have a job for five years now, whereas previously you would have had a job for life, or perhaps you wouldn't have even had a job. You would have been some indigent labourer under the, the yeah. feudal lord of whatever country you were currently being occupied by.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. It, spread, it spreads to a, like a bunch of um, phenomena, actually, where the meaning, that what looks like a good thing, having loads of options and loads of choice, is not necessarily a good thing. So uh, you can think of, you know, even things like digital photography seemed like a good thing, but it's absolutely sort of taken the meaning and value out of the photograph, which used to be a, a nice thing. You'd take a lot of care in choosing them, and then you put them in the album, and you would actually look at them now and again. Most people don't look at their photographs. You'd take a trillion photographs, and they're gone. they disappeared somewhere on your hard drive, never to be seen, seen again. So it's uh, sort of, uh, you can say the same thing as well about the, um, the in the internet and the google search right you've got all of that knowledge all of what looks like this huge possibilities and huge options for finding things out and it's it's too much choice and it ruins the sort of meaning of maybe going into a library or getting a book and looking at it and it will have more significance when you find this fact so it's sort of reducing the value of many things even though it allows you know us to talk these technologies allow us to talk and do things like this and they can be very very good and and um productive i agree that having so many options is not necessarily a good thing because it's then harder to choose well this is barry schwartz's
0: the paradox of choice right he uses this great example in his ted talk from 10 12 maybe even 15 years ago now um 50 years ago you go into the jeans store to buy yourself some jeans and there's one pair of jeans in many mm-hmm. waist sizes. What's your waist size? There's your jeans. You go in now yeah. and it's okay. Well, do you want skinny or straight? Do you want boot cut? Do you want stretch? Do you want crop? Do you want ripped? Do you want bleached? Do you want dark? Yeah. Do you want blue? Do you want like weathered? And all of that choice from a, a an economist's point of view would suggest that you can get closer to your optimal utility function. The thing yeah. that I want the most is available to me. Therefore I can optimize. Mm. But what it doesn't account for is decision paralysis and regret and mm. the fact that if you're faced with all of these different options, a lot of the time you walk out of the store with no jeans because mm. if you're you become culpable for the suboptimal decision the more choices that you have, right? Mm-hmm. If yeah. you could have chosen otherwise, the fact that you didn't puts the impact of that potentially bad decision on your shoulders. Whereas if you couldn't have chosen otherwise, yeah. like no one in an arranged marriage feels like they chose the wrong partner. You know, yeah. They might not be happy with their partner, but they they don't yeah. feel their own same sense of sort of culpability and regret.
1: Yeah, exactly. The more options – that's a very good point, actually. The more options there are, the more ways there are of getting, getting it wrong, basically. It's almost like an entropy kind of, thing, kind of calculation. It's a very good point.
0: So I feel like it's a particularly sort of brutal paradox that – trying to keep your options open to live a life with optimal optionality can result in no life being lived at all because you're just in this yes. liminal space throughout it all.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, and, and that's kind of one of the main, again, one of the main points of the book is that, I mean, I don't mention this as an example. I possibly would have done had I have thought of this. One of the reasons for provisionality, the the reason I give for provisionality is a little bit,
0: just give us a definition um, of provisionality, just in case people haven't quite hammered that home.
1: Yeah, so provisionality is the idea that you're sort of, as you said at, um, earlier, you're waiting for the thing to happen, the real thing to happen. So you're indecisive. There's never a decision made. So you, you, know, you might you know, have a, a girlfriend, for example, and you, you're not quite ready to tie the knot because you think there might be something better, somebody who will fit better or something like this. You don't quite want to buy any of these houses because you think you, another one might come later. It's almost a kind of fear of missing out on the better option. Um, so you end up not doing anything at all. And you've sort of got this unlived life where you're always waiting. It's always provisional. What you have now is never the thing. So it's always pointing elsewhere. And you never settled like that. And you're never real. It's almost like a virtual reality, right? Because you're never sort of settling into real life. Um, so that's the idea. Now what were we talking about, we were talking about why. Your example I think people, that you didn't put people, in the book. Yeah, why people choose not choose, why people seem to go down this provisional life, is precisely because and it I suppose relates to your example, when you make a choice and you do decide, you there's a knowledge that you are foregoing these other options. Right? It's a sacrificial act. Choosing something, especially the more significant the act becomes. The greater the sacrifice so again sort of the girlfriend example if you decide to commit to one person and you mean it then you're sacrificing lots and lots and lots of different opportunities if you sort of choose some particular job i give the example of a musical instrument i I always wanted to learn both piano and violin but you're never going to get really really good if you if you're you know the more options you keep open the less, you're, the less, because you're going to be at one particular thing. So you have to make a choice, and you're sacrificing something that you would love as well. So there's like real significance in making these choices. But this is where the meaning comes from as well, because sort of with a there's sort of meaning in sacrifice, because it gives the thing that you choose more significance in that way, right? If you're having to give something up to choose the, th- the thing that you eventually choose then it's sort of imbuing this whole thing with meaning, and it it carves a meaningful life in this way.
0: Because if life was unlimited, then you would never have to say no to anything. You would be able to learn the violin, and then learn the piano, and then learn the trombone, and then learn the flute, and the harmonica, and so on and so forth.
1: Exactly. Um, Provisionality would then be a a sort of the, the natural choice, basically. You could live provisionally, because you would be able to sample all... Um, options in this possibility space that you have before you you could just try anything you can say I'll do that once I've done this I'll master this then I can do that I'll be sort of married to this person for a thousand years and then we'll try then that we'll one try the guy. next
0: one yeah exactly okay yeah. so I understand that um somebody who is railing against the inbuilt shortness of life or e- even just the fact that it has an end at all I think that seems pretty robust. Yes, it would be nice if we could do 250 and and stick about for that long. Um, But I do think unlimited life would end up a whole bunch of strange externalities. Let's say that somebody's accepted that. How does this help them live a better life? They know that it's going to end. They've conceded the fact that they're not going to be immortal. What is the next? What's the next step after they've accepted that? Then what is it yep. to live a, a meaningful well, life?
1: Yeah. So then, so it's again going back to this idea of um, choosing and making sure that the choices you make are, um, the decisions you make are done with intention, right? So this, the fact that you've got this death um, flashing away at you should be there to force you to. Um, avoid living provisionally, as we've just mentioned, but also choosing the particular options you choose with a bit more care and attention, because it clearly is extremely precious. And people usually start thinking about this at midlife. It's called a midlife crisis. And maybe, and I used to hate that word, midlife crisis, but if you think of crisis as, you know, from the Greek word, as I mentioned earlier, as decision and having to choose, then it's actually not such a bad idea, because once you get past that midlife, you're precisely aware that your possibility space is shrinking. So you, it's harder to live in this provisional options open way. You can see that you now have to start making decisions that are really going to matter. And the closer you get, the more options are, are carved away. So you can either have this situation where you know, the world or other people are carving away those options and choosing this little final bit of path. Or you can figure out which um, path you would like to choose in those final, especially in those final um, bits. So one of the other things I bring in, so, I mean, it's hard to know what is the right decision, right? Um, So one of the things I bring in on this point is Jung's notion of individuation. And the idea of individuation is basically to try and make it so that the, the the actions you're carrying out are truly actions that match, um, I don't know how, how to put this, your kind of true self, your true authentic self. Because otherwise, although it, it looks like you're making decisions, it can be a whole bunch of external things, such as traumas or from influences from outside, from sort of media. You know, a lot of young people seem to be, because they're so heavily buried in social media, they think that they're choosing things and being very unique in how they're carving themselves. And they think that it's them that are, you know, carving themselves. It's quite clearly coming from a bunch of external influences that are molding them from outside. So if you don't want to be, I mean, the analogy Jung gives is sort of being bobbed around like a cork in an ocean, right? It's just being pushed around by everything else rather than making its own way in that ocean. So individuation is the idea of figuring out what those complexes are that might be affecting you and influencing your decisions, what projections you might be putting out there onto the world so that you're not seeing it right, because it's being colored by all of these projections and things that have been put into you, so that any decisive action is is truly your decisive action, an an authentic action. So this is quite a, a modern, this is a common thing now in a lot of literature, it's presented in different ways, but this is sort of Jung's great invention, this idea of individuation and making everything unconscious as close to consciousness as possible. So there's nothing, you know, and then you don't get caught. You don't sort of find yourself wondering why you did a particular thing.
0: I spent 20 years climbing up a ladder to find out that it was against the wrong wall.
1: For example, yeah, basically that kind of thing. Why did I get drunk again? Why did I do this again? why you know why did I just spend this many hours doing something I really didn't want to do? because you know that there is something inside you that, that rebels whenever you do something stupid or you spend too long doing something you know you know you shouldn't do there's a thing that knows you shouldn't do it so it's trying to make the all of the unconscious drivers um, transparent basically so you can deal with them.
0: It seems to me I've been using the term uh consciously designed life or intentional living Mm -hmm. and both Mm -hmm. of those seem to make a a nice amount of sense here like the the number one lesson that I've taken away from 600 episodes on this podcast is that you do not to live need to live your life by default you can live it by design and Uh you get to inject yourself in ahead of the way that your past traumas and social norms and societal expectations and what your family wants you to do and the paths of least resistance and the fact that the couch is comfortable on a Thursday night, all of Mm. those things, every single one of those, there are predispositions that may push you toward one particular path or another, but it is within your power to be able to redirect that. It is within your power to be able to choose how you respond, even if it's just internally in a situation where you're completely Mm. restricted, right? This was the uh, man's search for meaning. This was Viktor Frankl's major insight from that as well. So given the fact that we're both saying here, intentional life design, individuation, don't just be a cork bobbing bobbing around in the middle of the ocean. That means that you need to take time and care and attention when it comes to making your decisions. But there's also this other price that you need to pay if you take too much time and care of your decisions because you end up in mm-hmm. the liminal space purgatory again and now you're dead and you haven't started living your life is this the fundamental yeah. tension between the two
1: that's absolutely it so it's um I sort of explicitly refer to it as a bouncing act it's a bouncing act between these two styles of living so there's the Puer eternus which I mentioned which is this unlimited style which you know, it's not all bad that this unlimited style. It's sometimes good. It can push you into doing things you wouldn't, you know, otherwise do. It's a bit more sort of risk taking, which can sometimes be good. It means you don't stagnate. On the other side, there's the over analytical Senex. So um, Jung calls it the Senex, which you know relates to Seneca. It's like the old man kind of archetype, and and it can become um a, a psychological complex as well so either side if taken too far can lead to problems so the Senex problem is okay you are you are pushed into inaction exactly as you say because you're analyzing everything you want to make sure you make exactly the right decision you don't screw anything up um you focused on too much on the future on making it right maybe too much on the past and thinking about what happened in the past so you're not living in that way either but you're not living if you're overly poor focused either, because you're not genuinely making decisions and forging a path. You're just doing everything. You're just trying everything out with no intention. So it's this really, and it is a very difficult thing, uh, thing to do. And you'll probably end up swinging one way at some stages in your life and then swinging the other way. And part of the problem is part of the problem of forming a life is to have all the various bits arranged at the right times. So there's a time for, this poor energy, which kind of energizes the life. There's a time for being cynics. And sometimes you might require a little bit of the poor energy later in life, right? You might get revived in some way by a little bit of that and not, as I say, stagnate towards the end of your life. So exactly. It is exactly this, um, this difficult balancing. Yeah.
0: There's a, an article that I must reference on, a monthly basis, What Do You Want to Want? by Kyle Eschenroder. It came out in 2017. uh, And wow, would you look at that? His uh, website, it would seem, has been taken over by a Canadian pharmacy, which is trying to sell (laughs) erectile dysfunction medication. So I must message him and get him to sort that out. Anyway, in it, he's got two quotes, both of which uh, make me think about this. One, I think it's an Aristotle quote. um, If a man knows not where he sails, no wind is favorable. And another one, which may also be Aristotle, or it might have been someone else from the, the Stoicism era, talks about this sort of listless man who steps out of his doorway on a morning, and if you to ask him, where is he going? What are you doing with your day? And he'll say, I'm not really too sure. I'll go, maybe I'll see some friends. Maybe I'll talk a little. Maybe I'll see if something comes up. And yeah. he, it, it seems that there is a an immediate comfort in this because your regret minimization in the moment is maximized, right? By mm-hmm. making no decision, there can be no regret immediately. You feel mm-hmm. no felt sense. There's no um, a choice cost needed at all, right? You pay no, cho- no cost at all for doing this. However, the longer that you do that for, the more you're going to look back on your life and realize that you just Treadmilled your way through everything at the mercy yeah. of the winds of culture and trauma and norms and parents.
1: Yeah, I mean it's exactly at the mercy. I mean, so the way it's quite existentialist all of this, and the way Sartre puts it is that you can either behave as a as a subject, as an active subject, or you can behave as an object. And objects are things that generally don't have, as Aristotle mentioned, um, purpose. They're not purposive systems they're not teleological they're not they're not aiming anywhere they're just being pushed around by natural laws and whatever forces um desire to take them the same as this listless man right he's not acting as a purpos- purpos- purposive system which presumably is what it's what being human is all about is that we're purposive systems we're supposed to have um aims so he's behaving as an object and we all do it we all go through these little phases where we're not quite Aware, And then every now and again, we'll pop back into ourselves and think, wow, I wasn't kind of there for a bit. You do it naturally when you're driving. I mean, it's amazing how automatic we can be and just be pushed around by the circumstances. And it's a really hard thing. I mean, we do it in meditation. Obviously, the whole point of meditation is to try and be aware constantly. I mean, the trick is to try and just bring that into everyday life always so that you're always meditating in the sense of always being aware of what is trying to push you, what is trying to move you, and making sure that it's you uh, that are making the decisions. And usually that requires having an aim, right? It's hard to make a decision if you don't have some intention and aim beyond it that it's taking you towards.
0: I had a conversation with Ryan Holiday about his new book, Discipline is Destiny. And I came to the opinion that without any goals, there can be no discipline. Because when you talk about discipline, it is in service of a thing, right? Mm. To Mm. the person for whom their goal is to be in the top 0.0001% of people that watch hours of TikTok per week. Them sitting on the couch and watching tons of TikTok is in service, that is their discipline, it's in Mm. service of their goals. Yeah. For the David Goggins of the world who wants to run 20 miles a day, getting up at five in the morning and shouting expletives in the mirror, that is also part of his discipline.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it has to be in service um, of a goal. Yeah, yeah. You've just reminded me of a, yeah another point I was intending to make earlier, which is um, sort of this vivid. It's sort of important to have this vivid um, image, this vivid picture of the future that you want, and that I mean. So I mentioned in the book some experiments that have been done um, where those that can form a very vivid picture of a future self right, a future version of them, um, generally do do better overall. So it's the vividity of that future um, aim, this sort of goal, the person you want to be in in the future, that drives it as well. And if you don't have... The less vivid it is, the less you're going to be driven by it. What were some of the sort of um, things
0: that people were thinking about? Was it the life they had? Was it the type of person they are? Was it their friends?
1: the, The type of person they wanted to be. So if you so you know if you want to get sort of really fit and you want um to improve your body it's it helps enormously to have the most vivid version of that future image that you can possibly have and there were sort of experiments done where people would be shown because often what happens is you end up thinking most people end up thinking of their future versions and we even call them future selves as if they're a different entity and I, i actually mentioned that i think this is a mistake in the book it's just you in the future it's not a future self as if it's a stranger it's you in the future and it's still going to be you present over there so I'm, I'm sort of very against this idea of, th- of thinking of future selves and the effort there was a bunch of fMRI studies done which showed that some people think of their future selves I'll use the term for now um, in exactly the same way as they think of strangers so the same bits of the brain are lighting up when they're thinking of that thing over there in the future as when they think of a complete stranger and that's a problem and the more you can make it so that that thing in the future is associated with how you think of yourself and not a stranger the better you're going to be at driving some disciplined sort of um schedule to take you somewhere so it's not only sort of you know um um, plausible. There's kind of good experimental results that have been done to to back this up. That this this sort of image and this this future goal, this aim, this teleological uh, target, is really crucial. What it, what was the danger the
0: of bulletproofing yourself?
1: Bulletproofing. Um, bulletproofing is. It's sort of. I mean, I should just say so. This. There's a whole range. You probably know them. Maybe you know them. You're wearing a fitness top. There's a whole range of um, bulletproofing, bulletproof sort of fitness products, keto and these kind of things. Um, It was developed by this guy Dave Asprey, who noticed that people were, people in Tibet or somewhere were sort of had really good energy and their bodies were sort of very good from drinking this ghee coffee, like mixed with fats and stuff like that. So he was one of the first people who realised that. You know, this sort of having lots of fats was a very good thing. And he developed this stuff called Bulletproof Coffee, where you mix it with ghee and whatnot. And and that's that's fine. I actually quite like these kind of things. But he started saying things in his books like you should sort of remove everything that makes you weak and old was one of the quotes he gave. And this I mean, that's kind of um, on the way to narcissism is the point of this. It's like very poor, eternus archetypal comment to make right don't be old don't be weak you've got you know just eradicate all of that and the end point of that is um sort of this thing that the psychoanalyst uh gene Arendelle calls the fortress of I. well what what ends up happening is that what you're presenting to the world is just this sort of shiny beast that's there to prevent any kind of harm or risk or damage But it's not real, right? Nothing's like that. Nobody's really, really like that. You can make yourself fit, and it's good, obviously. I sort of do this. You can sort of try and be healthy and these kind of things. But the limiting case that he's trying to push towards sounds like absolute narcissism. So there's a whole chapter on what happens when you push this desire to be utterly unlimited and invulnerable to the limit. And I think you end up with this strange... um, projected um, creature that is not really human in any way. And some people like that again. Some people are just obsessed with this idea of getting beyond human, but I don't think we're very good humans yet anyway. We haven't tried being properly human yet and probably, you know, as you say, consciously creating our circumstances.
0: What was that quote that you had about, um, about how people use social media? Was it something like people would rather appear happy than be happy, something like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, what they're doing is, I mean, they're presenting and it's the image again, they're presenting a projection They're they're more concerned about how they appear than how they are, basically. And this is, you know, it goes back to the, the options that you mentioned earlier, right? They go around, there's like a trillion pairs of jeans that they can try and they're sort of carving through appearance, thinking that that's going to define who they are. And there's not really a lot going on sort of underneath that. We used to, teach people to work on, you know, sort of this inner aspect of themselves. We don't seem to do that anymore. It seems to be very external because what's getting presented, the only thing you can really present on social media is an external snapshot. So you need to make that external snapshot as good and bright and as sort of impressive as can possibly be. And that's the focus. That seems to be the focus of things. I mean, imagine what Seneca would think of these things. He would, I just can't imagine if he saw Facebook and social media. Well, I don't have social media. I can't I can't bear it.
0: Well, I think it, it it makes a lot of sense. I have a bunch of friends who also can't use it, but for better or worse it's here. And yeah. we are defined by our, by our opinions and appearances now. And the thing is that we've now, in the modern world, been able to detach opinion from grounding in something to back that opinion up greater than has ever been. So for instance, I can proselytize online about how altruistic or great my relationship with my mother is, right? Meanwhile, going home and then treating her like an absolute piece of shit. I can do that. And the gap between what you can present online and the reality of what's occurring has never been so wide.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's the author, again, it goes to the, um, the individuation and the authenticity thing again. I mean, what you really want and what's going to make you feel the best and most in control is if how you are presenting yourself to the world is how you actually feel, because then there's no lie. Nobody's lying about anything then, but it's a kind of deception, right? And the only person you're really deceiving is obviously yourself, because then you constantly feel like shit because you realize you're constantly acting, right? Everything's, everything's this, put this big performance and then you go back and you've you know, you're somebody completely different. So there's nothing wrong with choosing, a, you know, this particular, um, these particular clothes. And there's nothing wrong with covering yourselves with tattoos if that's what matches. But it never matches. It's generally something because they feel shit. So they do these things rather than just becoming, you know, becoming who they are.
0: There's an interesting situation occurring online that relates with this in the Uh, content creation world. Are you familiar with audience capture? Do you know what that is?
1: No, I'm not aware of
0: this. So um, audience capture occurs when a particular content creator online finds content that resonates with their audience and then begins to further define what they make by what they think the audience will want. So Uh, they start to throw more and more red meat toward their audience and ends up becoming basically a caricature of what their audience thinks they are. And yeah. there's this example that my fr- friend Gwenda, the guy who I gave you that quote about earlier on, does this amazing article yeah. on Substack that you'd love called On the Perils of Audience Capture. And there's this guy called Nikocado Avocado, who used to be a vegan violin playing YouTuber. And he was like this mm. sort of thin, um, kind of like nerdy, sort of dainty guy. And then he started doing eating compilations on YouTube. Where he would eat food, like huge amounts of food, and he was getting a lot of attention for doing this, and and the plays were going up, and and people were giving him what he wanted, which was public uh, focus. And it has got to the stage now where he is gone from being this thin, spindly violin playing vegan to this sort of awful, fat, slovenly, screaming guy with a CPAC mask on, three hundred and fifty pounds, permanently in and out of the doctor. Because he has been sub he says uh, the person was subsumed by the persona that's how he describes it
1: yeah that's absolutely um it's tragic and it's kind of our fault really as <laughs> as a society to be incentivizing incentivizing that kind of thing and again, it's the social media obviously that also incentivizes this kind of thing by getting the hit but it's an old um, phenomenon of course I mean you think of somebody like Marilyn Monroe who had this persona. She was apparently completely different. She was quite well read and quite erudite off screen, but she had to constantly be this other person for her audience, right the bubbly blonde books you know buxom kind of lady, and it inevitably leads to suicide, like I would worry about this guy who's doing this if it's so heavily divergent from what he clearly is from his initial point of origin he's in trouble and he's probably going to be needing some actual psychological help.
0: Every time that he disappears from the internet for a little while which he does for periods sometimes he's in hospital sometimes he's just doing other things or whatever there is a a non-minor contingent of people that send out an alarm call saying we need to check, we need to make sure that he hasn't decided to top himself because he's, I know it's millions of people. I don't know how many subscribers. It's lots and lots and lots of people who have been observing the slow motion self-immolation of this guy on the Internet. And I do understand what you mean. You know, we shouldn't be supporting this behavior by watching it, but it's the same compelling reason that people rub neck as they go past a car crash, right? Like it's, it's so limbically inbuilt yeah. in us and he yeah. has reverse engineered a type of content, which taps into something and then has leaned into it more. So the dynamic goes both ways. Everybody talks about the echo chambers that you get into online. And these algorithms are so manipulative because they are able to find the exact thing that you want to watch and they can deliver it to you. No one ever talks about what happens reverse to the creator the creator gets shaped by the algorithm and the audience in the same way that the audience gets shaped by the algorithm and the creator.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting from the point of view of sort of highlighting in a really stark version, what we all do a little bit of, like we all present a a version that we would like to be right. We might like, you know, when you're young, you're really concerned about your appearance. We all were, I was, um, when you're a, an academic, for example, just starting, you want to present yourself as this kind of very, I don't know, over-the-top intellectual. You might even arrange – like when I was younger, here's a, here's a confession, um, and I was, um, I would have somebody in my office. I would arrange books of a particular kind, really impressive books, sort of on my office shelves as if I'd been reading them, to look like, wow, that guy's reading These quantum field theory books, that's amazing. How pathetic is that? But it's a similar kind of thing. It's exactly the same kind of thing. I'm presenting something for other people. This is not for me. It's not doing anything for me. It's not who I am. But I want them to appreciate me. But they're not appreciating me. They're appreciating that thing there. That's exactly what's missing.
0: percent I did uh, a TEDx talk a couple of years ago, and this was a big chunk of what I spoke about where I said that – if you are not careful any praise that you receive won't ever existentially feel like it connects with you because if you're That's only funny. playing a role people aren't applauding you they're applauding the persona that you are and this is why yeah. i think you get um some deaths in the acting world because the robin williams of the world yeah. or the heath ledgers you know when someone applauds the performance they're not we're not in love with Russell Crowe, we're in love with Gladiator. We're not in love with Chris Hemsworth. We're in love with Thor, mm. right? And the, yeah. the detachment from the two, uh, for a big time, I was this well-known club promoter and did all of this stuff, and it was fantastic, and people knew my name, but it didn't fulfill me in the same way as doing the podcast does. And I think that yeah. that's because, despite the fact that I adored the work and loved the lifestyle and thought I was super proud of what I'd achieved, in a crowd of a thousand people, I was still able to feel a little bit alone because I had to put on a front. And because I was putting mm-hmm. on a front and performing, in a way, any time that somebody came over and gave me a compliment, it, it didn't really land. Because I was like, oh, you, club promoter Chris just received a compliment, how fantastic for him.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's probably one good way of gauging um, how authentic you are, is how well you can take a compliment from somebody. Whether you can just go, okay, yeah, good, like thanks, because <laughs> it's it goes either of one, you know, it can go a number of ways. Either you feel like shit because it's not really complimenting you, as you say, it's complimenting this character that you've built. This is what I meant by the shiny beast of I, by the way, earlier. It, it's the the character that you've built, this invulnerable character that's being, you know, applauded and these kind of things. So, um, so it can go that way, or you can be again, like the cork in the ocean, um, pushed around by it. And it's exactly this sort of being sort of built up. If you get a compliment, you sort of start to thrive on seeking those compliments. And that's probably, and that's exactly what happened to this guy who started eating, right? There was sort of some sort of attention and compliment and you realized you could get it this way and you want more and you get pushed by it. So again, it's sort of this, um, Being an object or being uh, an agent, an actor, somebody who's creating the script as you go. If you're getting pushed around like this, you are not in control. If you you get a criticism and you go, oh my God, and you're down for ages, you're not in control. You're being absolutely moved around like a cork in an ocean.
0: Other people's heads are a wretched place for your self-worth to live. There was a quote that I found last week from Stephen Pressfield in Turning Pro. The amateur is a narcissist. He views the world hierarchically. He continuously rates himself in relation to others, becoming self-inflated if his fortunes rise and desperately anxious if his star should fall. The amateur wow. sees himself That's as the a hero, not only of his own movie, but of the movies of others. He insists <laughs> in his mind, if nowhere else, that others share this view.
1: That's... Very, very good. I like that a lot. And yeah, I have something a little bit similar where the the narcissist and the poor, I think they sort of have this idea that they're constantly being judged, right? They're, they're the source of other people's movies. And I mentioned they feel like they're being sort of, you know, people are following them around like a big marching band, always watching their every move, waiting for these for these things to happen. But like, again, I had some of these, these kind of um, issues myself, like some of this book was self therapy was sort of recognizing a bunch of these slightly narcissistic issues that I had, especially this sort of comparing with others. Like I would always have to try and better everybody like be the best, do the hardest thing. Like with piano, I would learn the hardest pieces with like my physics stuff. It would have to be the very hardest areas of physics that I did. (laughs) Otherwise it wasn't good enough. And it's the bulletproofing thing, be the absolute best at everything. And if and it would sort of, it and it's exhausting because obviously you can't do everything, you can't be good at everything. But I would try to be good at everything. So this was a sort of a way of trying to eradicate all of these these issues that I was finding in myself to, yeah, to not be exhausted all the time and not have this deceit constantly going on. What are the tools thing.
0: that you have learned to use to remind yourself of the stuff that we've gone through here? Because you know it, it, it's philosophically very compelling sounds great I need to remember the shortness of life I need to think about my decisions beforehand but not for so long that I die before I make them and I need to all all of this wrapped together is great but when it comes to applying this what is there something that you rely on a mantra or, or or an insight that reminds you of the shortness of life and reminds you of the importance of decisions and reminds you that you need to be in control of your own destiny
1: I don't know. I think look, the, the main thing, the main thing I do has to do with, um, I don't know, in terms of work, I'm always trying to only be doing the thing that I would do if I wasn't getting paid for it. If I was left just to be able to choose whatever I was doing at any moment, I want to be doing that now. And that's kind of what I, I am doing. Like at any particular day, I'm generally doing what I would be doing if I weren't being paid for it. That's a really tricky... I mean, you have to engineer it. It took a long time to get to this stage. And it and it was by using things like this vividness of the future that you want, right? This sort of picturing, almost like a movie, that the future that you want. And then it's essentially a series of steps. Like there is... Even though it differs, the, the kind of steps that you would need to do differs from your starting point, obviously. Some people are poor... Some people don't quite have the uh, sort of natural um, skills in whatever, in music or whatever it is that they want to do. So they're gonna, it's going to take longer or shorter. Some things might not really be possible, so they're going to have to make compromises and change that future. But I generally always have a positive future image in mind, and then it makes all of the awfulness that you have to go through okay, because it, it is awful. Engineering a good life is absolutely brutal and and painful right you have to look at how many podcasts you're doing a week you're you're sort of reading a bunch of stuff but it doesn't feel awful because you've got this sort of aim at you want to find things out right you want to find truths so my ultimate aim is a similar thing I suppose right I want to know the truth of this world and why we're here the mysteries of this world of people whether there's uh, more to it going on and that sort of pulls me through all of the arduous work and learning of new things that, that that I do.
0: As soon as you posit an ideal, you begin to compare yourself to that ideal. And inherent in that is disappointment when you fall short. So how do you deal with the inbuilt um, fear of failure?
1: Um, well, you're, you're always going to fail. I mean, it's always going to be an ideal image. It's never supposed to, I mean, look, it's never going to be a um, it's probably never going to be realised, and you probably never don't want that ideal to be realised because then you're sort of, you've sort of lost a, a component of meaning that was leading you towards it. Right? It's the path towards that image that's sort of providing the meaning, the decisions and the things you have to do to get there. If you make it there, well, you probably didn't have a high enough um, goal in the first place, or then you need to set a more impressive goal. How, so how do you avoid? I, I don't think you ever.
0: In in that situation, how do you avoid yourself being permanently dissatisfied, though? If you're always setting the goal one step further than you can run to, does that not permanently leave, leave you in this sort of sense of inferiority?
1: Inferiority, I don't... Hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's certainly a problem because you, you're always striving. You're certainly always going to be striving, but... I don't know. To me, that's part of being alive—is this striving to a goal? You should. I mean, maybe that's the time. You know, if you've if you've achieved your absolute ultimate goal that you've been striving towards for your life, then you can. I would suppose die kind of pretty pretty happily. But until then, like it's the striving that's the that's the interesting thing and meeting the obstacles. You had this guy. You had Ryan Holiday. He's the guy that did that obstacle book, right? Obstacle
0: is the way. Is that yeah. the guy? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's that's exactly that's kind of. Very similar. He's chosen a different form of limitation. I, ch- I was focusing on death, but it sort of applies to limitations and obstacles in general. I mean, we feel good when we're battling. And in fact, I give a, an example at the end of the book. Um, there's a biologist, John Calhoun, who, tried, who did these experiments on utopias, um, biological experiments using mice. And he tried to raise a set of mice in utopian conditions where every need was catered for. There was no obstacle. There were no problems. They had all their food and everything. And they didn't, they didn't fare so well as the mice that had lots of obstacles and were having to fight for their food and battle for it and had scarcity now and again. And it seems that the utopia – and some of them died. Some of the mice actually died because everything was, was given. So it's, it seems like this idea of having utopian con- conditions and not having any obstacles or constraints or limits – just leads to a absolutely dystopian kind of nightmare of a life where you can't stand it, you can't live in that. Even mice can't handle it.
0: Was it Marcus Aurelius who said, the whole universe is change and life itself is but what we deem it? I think it was. And it's that life itself is but what we deem it bit that seems interesting to me because the story around the challenges that you face and the difficulties and the setbacks and so on and so forth is for the most part your experience of it like that's not for me to say that if you're to snap a leg and you just tell yourself that oh this is fun i get to experience what having a snapped leg is like that it's going to be that much better but mm. certainly with all of the myriad of just daily issues the sitting in traffic the extra time with the kids in the car on the way to school it's like is this is this making me late for work or is it extending the time that i get with my children like yeah yeah you know the story that you tell yourself and your reframing of it it, it is, for the most part, what's going on. It, it very heavily colors almost entirely your experience, and especially given the fact that in retrospect, you're not really going to remember the thing that happened, but you'll remember your experience, which was colored by your interpretation.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the, like, the classic um, stoic mindset, right? You can, you can choose how any particular event, it's all internal. Like, your entire world is internal, basically. So you can choose how you're going to deal with it. If you get, a, you can choose to be offended. You can choose if you're stuck in traffic whether to be pissed off by it or think this is an opportunity for me to think about that problem I wanted to think about. Like I broke my ankle recently and I was because it, it kind of took me off my. I was like very speedily doing things and I was not really thinking. So I could have been pissed off by breaking my ankle, but I thought it was you know an opportunity to slow down and deal with a whole bunch of other things that I had to deal with. So there's a you can. I mean, I'm sure there are really bad things where you. it's very hard to have this kind of stoical approach if you've got some, you know, really awful kind of injury. But um, with most ordinary day-to-day inconveniences, they don't really need to be inconveniences, but it's obviously hard to do. And it's, it's part of the discipline, again, part of the habit. You need to get into a habit. I think I do, I do now have the traffic habit, I must say. I developed this because I'm always stuck in traffic these days. So you, you can either go mad or you can use it.
0: It's interesting to think about um, playing around with the idea of the end justifying the things that you went through, which means that you're miserable en route to it. And then if you've posited a sufficiently high goal, then sometimes you're never going to achieve it. Um, this is why I think it's so important in advance to make sure that the things that you're doing are enjoyable in the moment right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're doing something which each individual iteration of is fine, like it'll be great when I have a big studio that I can enjoy going into work and I never have to answer an email again and I've got a big team and all of this stuff. That'll be great. But the path en route to doing that, each one of these podcasts that I do is also enjoyable. Like this is, I'm not paying some unbelievably huge price. And even when there is discomfort, sitting down and reading a book that's, that's hard or or whatever, trying to learn something in a really condensed period of time or doing a podcast when I'm underslept because I've just flown back from New York or whatever, right? Even that is like, well, all right, it's it's challenging, but it's challenging towards something which I genuinely care about and it's challenging in an enjoyable way. So yeah, there are people that are in positions that are so, so limited that they can't just pick and choose their entire life like that. Like, I I understand that. I feel like there are far more degrees of freedom that people can have in order to be able to do that. And there's this quote from uh, an episode I did with Peterson two years ago now, and uh, it was so good. I think it relates to the other side of this equation, which is the um, uh, over-optionality optimization. Contemplate the price you pay for inaction. You're already in a little hell. You know perfectly well it's going to get worse. The thing about inaction is that you're blind to it, do not make the assumption that inaction has no price.
1: Mm. That's a very nice quote. Uh, another quote I like, which I give, quite, I think I give it, yeah, I give it in the book, which was by Terence McKenna. Uh, Terence McKenna had taken lots of mushrooms, apparently, and it was a mushroom that said it to him, and he said, look, you need to, you need to have a plan, because if you don't have a plan, you'll be part of somebody else's plan which is again it's sort of this this same idea you it's either you are going to move yourself or you're going to be moved by somebody else or the world i mean what do you want which one do you want it to you be if you don't
0: prioritize your life somebody else will that's the yeah. fundamental realization
1: yeah yeah and uh, again you can do this in in many ways it doesn't have to be huge massive ridiculous you know world changing goals all the time it can be many things but it just has to be you that's choosing them it's absolutely crucial
0: dean rickles ladies and gentlemen if people want to check out the book and your work uh, if you got a website you don't have social media where else where can people no. find you do you exist online you're a digital ghost
1: i'm a digital ghost i think i have a university web page i think somebody did a wikipedia page but there's lots of books on amazon um as well with information there all right i dean. should maybe
0: yeah <laughs> i appreciate you thank you mate
1: <laughs> So yeah.